for another uh, Godpod. And we have with us today uh, Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello. Uh, we also have a very uh, special guest today, Mark Stivy. Hello. Mark, very good to have you with us. And um, Mark Stivy, um, I'm sure many of you will know Mark Stivy, but if you don't... Um, you well, you're <laughs> that's right. Why not? Or else. Yeah, that's right. You're, um, you're Vicar of St. Andrews Chorleywood. Correct. And how long have you done that for? I've been there for 10 years. Okay, 10 years. Chorleywood is here in good old England. It is. It's just off the uh, off Britain's car park, the M25, uh, Junction yeah, yeah, yeah. 17. Yep, yeah, that's right. Near the bumper-to-bumper cars. Yeah. yeah, okay. And is that fun to do? Good job. I love it. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing anything else. Because you used to teach theology and stuff, didn't you? Well, I've never actually uh, taught theology as a, a separate individual career. Oh. I've done that always alongside being a parish minister. Oh. So when I was a curate in Sheffield, I was an honorary lecturer at the Department of Biblical Studies there at the university. Oh. And then when I came down from Sheffield to Chorley Wood, um, oh. I got linked to the London School of Theology, as it's oh. now called, oh. as an oh. assistant research fellow, I think oh. is the technical label. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've always kept it going alongside... Uh, ministry because yeah. I, I found it essential to do it that way. For me, I always wanted to um, do my theological research mm. within the context of um, parish ministry. So, so how do you manage that? How do you manage well, that? Well, with difficulty, but I am a, I'm a very fast reader. I don't okay. know yeah. quite how that came about, except that I'm watching the same process happen to my wife now that she's oh. doing a PhD. Her ability yeah, to read books has accelerated oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. phenomenally, and I think it must have been in that phase of my life that I... Oh. Just unconsciously developed fast reading skills, so I do read quite quickly. And you carve out time to do it, even when you're being a bit. Yeah, and I just do it on the on the move, as yeah. I'm sure you do as well. Yeah, sure. Excellent, that's great. Now, the um, I guess part of the reason for for bringing Mark in today was to um, to talk about the Da Vinci Code because what's that then? Um, <laughs> well, it's a little film apparently that's coming out, sort of obscure French black and white thing. Oh, film noir again. <laughs> exactly, that's right. No one's ever heard Bit of it. Bit noir, so. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we hear uh, a rumour that it might be coming out fairly soon. Oh, and we are um, in touch here, aren't we? And so, now, so Mark, you've been, you've been um, doing some thinking and writing about this, haven't you? This yeah, I, I, I happen to think that the novel The Da Vinci Code is uh, one of the most, uh, one of the best evangelistic opportunities that we have probably in the decade. I know when the Passion of the Christ movie came out, everyone was raving about that as an opportunity, but I think this is greater than that. Why why, why do you think that? Well, I think that um, more people who wouldn't normally go to church will be reading The Da Vinci Code and watching the movie. I mean, the current figures are something astronomical. Uh, Yeah, 40 million people have bought the book, just bought the book. Golly, that's more than Cafe Theology. It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's it's more than Graham's latest book on (laughs) the gym. It's It's an extraordinary thing. It's probably more people than go to the gym. (laughs) 40 40 million have bought it, and it's translated into 44 languages so Mm. far. Um, I mean, it's a massive cultural phenomenon, yeah. and um, because it has a lot to say controversially about Jesus, yeah. about the early church, yeah. about the formation of Christianity. The yeah. so have, you, have, you, have, have you seen any kind of advanced rushes of the film or anything like that? I've only seen the advanced trailers, yeah, okay. uh, the extended yeah. one, and it looks like it's been very well done yeah, and very yeah, faithful to the book. Um, yeah. It's got a very good director, and obviously uh, everybody's favourite male actor, Tom yeah. Hanks. That's right. So when, when when you first read it, yes, was that kind of early on when it was um, yeah. when it first came out? Yeah. What, what were your initial impressions? I, mean, what, I thought what it was fantastic. I mean, you know, it's the kind of book where 
It's two o'clock in the morning, but oh, just one more chapter. Is that that, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, cliffhanger. Yeah. Every yeah. chapter, all 105 chapters end on a cliffhanger. Mm. So in terms of plot... Like Dickens, with his serialisation every time... Every bit as exciting as Dickens, yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Praise indeed. Yeah. Um, Characterisation is not quite as good, I think. No, <laughs> the, the prose is, is just awful. <laughs> but the plot, <laughs> it, it's all driven by plot. Yeah. It's not yeah. driven by characterisation, it's not driven by yeah. good prose or mm. turns of phrase, it's not fine literature, but mm. it's, it's a really... It's a roller coaster read. Yeah. You can't put it down. And in fact, all of um, Dan Brown's four novels are yeah. identical in that respect. They're written the same yeah. racy style. I mean, for a biggish book, uh, you do get through it amazingly quickly, don't you? Yeah, I, you do. I think I read it in. I got it for Christmas about last year, I think, and I read yeah. it by halfway through Boxing Day. I thought it was, it was fantastic. I mean, in terms of content, yeah. obviously, I thought, yeah, yeah. goodness yeah. me, we've we've heard this before. Can anyone mm. really believe this stuff? Mm. But mm-hmm. people evidently do believe it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, the reason why. Uh, I felt I had to respond to it. Yeah. I, I responded because it presents it as fact, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed. Um, which indeed. it isn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Dan Brown is a little bit ambivalent on the whole issue of the factual nature of the contents oh. of the book because, you know, he does say, oh, I'm a believer. But also, if you look at his website, he's not entirely clear about what he's a believer. Yeah. He's interested in devotee or interested in various religions of some kind, isn't he? But he, he, calls he, himself he calls himself a Christian, yeah, but what right. kind of Christian is very unclear, yeah. but um, in the latest court case, he mm. came out very positively on um, the doctrine of the resurrection, how precious mm. that was to mm. him, and he wouldn't have messed mm. with that, mm. though he was prepared mm. to mess with other things, like yeah, yeah. the pregnancy yeah. of Mary Magdalene and so on. Sure, so. Yeah. I, think, I mean, before we get on to the, the kind of content of what it says about Christian faith, I, mean, I think the thing that intrigues me is the question of why this particular book has become such a phenomenon and what is it about it that that does somehow strike a chord with our our culture and, and so many people in it obviously not just in this country but but far beyond as well i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah i think there's a whole bunch of reasons i think it tunes into um a very very cultural uh, phenomenon right now which is suspicion about institutions i mean all four of the books really seek to um, deconstruct institutions of one kind or another. And this one, of course, is the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. Um, And on that, I think it rides on the crest of a wave of suspicion about the Roman Catholic Church, obviously with the um, incidences of child abuse and all the rest in America. And Mm. and, and, I think that's really... um, I think it's exploitive, to be honest, Mm. personally, because that's only a very tiny reflection of what... Mm. Well, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is all about. It's more than just the Roman Catholic Church, isn't it? Because it, 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 there's also that sort of slightly, you know, there's a feeling of being a bit, a bit subversive, and, you know, all this stuff about Jesus that we've heard from all the churches, you know, mm-hmm. well, we, we all now know it's not true because behind it all, you know, he was really secretly married and blah, 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 blah. And I suppose there's something about undermining not just an institution as in a church, but actually a body of truth, which a culture has sort of lived by for so, so long. And it, I mean, it may be that we're actually some ways, slightly as a culture, kind of in, in reaction to that in, 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 in all kinds of different ways. I mean, it's a bit like that, you know, the, you know, when Tony Blair says that he's, you know, he happened to have prayed or, or thought he would be judged for his decision on going to war in Iraq. There was a huge outcry, you know, how can he possibly say anything like this now? It's a bizarre thing. Because hmm. actually, I mean, it's a good thing if a prime minister thinks he might be judged for what he does. Well, indeed. Um, but it's all part of a, of a, of a culture that's, that's kind of almost in reaction to to what's gone on over the last couple of thousand years, really. Well, I think more to the point, perhaps, the last couple of hundred years, where mm-hmm. there's been a very, very, as you know, 
um, fluctuating and changing view mm. about truth. We've gone mm. from truth is something absolute to mm. truth is something relative mm. to truth is something that you create now. And I yeah. think... And used as a weapon against somebody else. Indeed. So truth is, is uh, you know, you construct your own reality today. And I think yeah. there's a lot of that in the Da Vinci Code where reality, um, the reality that yeah. is painted... Mm and portrayed in the book doesn't actually have any real correspondence mm. with fact yeah. but then that's a very culturally mm. um, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's something that a lot of people are doing in our culture yeah. but in the book I suppose you've got these sort of the, the whole very great interest in signs and symbology and all of that which is kind of all about multiple layers of truth and you can never quite be sure of what, what, what the truth is and that kind of ties into something Quite deep within our culture, I think that sense of the slipperiness of truth. Truth is something you, you know you can't actually arrive at it at the end of the day. So therefore, you know, let's not bother. And I think the genius of Dan Brown, in terms of exploiting a, a moment and creating a mm. tipping point in our mm. culture, has been to combine that love of different levels of mm. meaning that symbolism mm. uh, creates with the whole fascination of a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah. So when you combine those two things, different layers of meaning plus conspiracy, it's a wonderful yeah, cocktail. Right. And yeah. You know, one thing about Dan Brown, he's not stupid. These people who, who um, exploit these tipping points or even create these tipping points, they know what they're doing. And he's, he's put together a recipe of elements that are extremely oh, powerful. Sure. And that's why you read on. You don't, you don't, as you read, think, oh, I'm reading Jane Austen or Charles Dickens to oh, quote yeah. you. You know, this yeah. is just unbelievable prose. <laughs> I can't stop reading. Or, <laughs> or insight into human nature. Of Robert Langdon, yeah. I just think this is yeah. so profound. Multifaceted. <laughs> I can't, you know, rounded. I just... <laughs> Um, it is, it's much more the, it, it's the theme park response mm. to literature, and it's mm. the theme park diversity of elements um, that I think has been created. It's fascinating to yeah, look yeah, at. Yeah, I, yeah, I really yeah. find it very enjoyable. It taps into a whole reservoir of mistrust generally, though, doesn't it? Totally. The, the whole kind of um, conspiracy theory thing, I mean, you know, the whole parts of the Muslim world that think that 9-11 was... Oh. Manufactured by the Americans on behalf of the Jewish state, and you know, and why is that? There's a, partly because there's a sense of powerlessness there, uh, since that everybody else holds the power and uses it against them, and partly just a, a legacy of mistrust, which happens in every area of, of life, pretty much, doesn't it? Politics, you know, when you Watergate and things have eroded our trust in the political realm. Uh, people are no longer committed to their businesses to sell them for profit. The first time they get an opportunity marriage and family, people see uh, relationships as being something you, you stay in while it works for you and then you get out of uh, and therefore people have not been committed to their experiences that they haven't been committed to and therefore it, they find it very difficult to trust I think, I think um, your reference to 9-11 is very very cri critical as well because I think there's a moment at the moment, if I may put it that way, <laughs> um, where books like The Da Vinci Code can succeed in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done prior to 9-11. You see, I think a lot of people are longing to believe deep down nowadays, I think particularly after 9-11, that there is meaning somewhere in all the madness. And they will settle for meaning, even if the meaning is a conspiracy. Do you know what I mean? Yes, at least yes. it's a plot. At least there's a story there. There's a story there, yeah. even if it's yes. not a very nice one. Yes. Even if it, but, it, but at least there's some sort of meaning in the madness. And I, I think... I think that the book exploits that uh, cultural insecurity that's mm. around as well. Yeah. Um, Mark, you're a, um, you're a kind of New Testament 
guy. I mean, Mike and I are fairly useless, really, because we're Mike is a sort of what, well, like in every way. Mike is a systematic theologian, aren't they? Even more useless churches. <laughs> well, somewhere the three of us might get something right. <laughs> you know something about the Bible, I'd like. So, I mean, what, what would you say to someone, you know, someone, someone's going to watch the film, read the book, come out of the video, come out of the cinema thinking, oh, wow, you know, now I know the truth about Jesus and all that kind of thing. And what, what would be the first thing you'd say to them to begin to sort of deconstruct that and help them to see things differently? Well, I think if they'd been to the film, I'd hope they'd, they'd uh, scratch my scratch card, which I'm Oh, yeah, that's right. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's a brilliant scratch card. Yeah, my hand, yeah. my hand right now. Well, there are ten questions on there, you see, yeah. that are about uh, fact and fiction in the Da Vinci Code. And yeah. it, it's a scratch card culture, so we decided we'd put a scratch card together and yeah. put it in just about every cinema in the country. And they'd be given away free, and then people would scratch the answers, the ten questions, and yeah. then they'd go to this website that we've... You're not going to put us on the spot and ask us the answers to those questions now, are you? What, to a systematic theologian? Yeah. No, 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 not worth doing. One or two that I think. One or two that you might get wrong and then claim we're right. That exactly. would be really That's worrying. Historically wrong, but theologically Claim three. The church knew from the earliest days that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a child. True or false? And that kind of thing. And the website is www.thedavinciacode.org.uk. So it's a great address, isn't it? Very good. Address. And there would be kind of resources on there to help people think these things yeah, through. Yeah, we've, uh, we've got a bookshop on there. Uh, we've got a booklet that you can download. We've also got access to other resources like Nicky Gumbel's here at HCB, his mm-hmm. excellent booklet, which is more in-depth than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and other resources too, because there, there are a number that are very, very useful. So I, I, would, I would point yeah, somebody sure. in the direction of some useful, yeah. user-friendly resources. Because yeah. it is quite... I mean, I suppose... I, mean, I, 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 I mean, as a, someone who knows a little bit about church history, re- reading it, um, especially when he got onto the bits about Constantine, yeah, my jaw dropped slightly. Yeah, you must <laughs> do as a church historian. I'd be worried if your jaw stayed upright. Exactly, that's right. And he thought, can this, does this man really believe this <laughs> stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I think he might have got the date of the Council of Nicaea right, but that's about all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's about you know Constantine deciding on the Bible and. Yeah. and Constantine upgrading Jesus to divinity as if no one had actually thought of that before. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Which is just as where astonishing it, to think that someone... Where it, obviously not knowing anything about the Bible, but it seems to be there in Paul, which yeah. is the earliest of our <laughs> biblical records. Well, somebody's yeah. estimated that there are 500 verses of the New Testament that presuppose the divinity oh. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we know that the early church fathers before Constantine were proclaiming the divinity yeah. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. We also know that the Bible was in formation before the time of Constantine, the four yeah. Gospels were yeah. obviously being very yeah. early, yeah. recognised as the quadriform, as yeah. it was called, gospel. Yeah. Um, gospel. So, yeah. you know, we know this stuff. It's, it's factual. Yeah. But yes. I mean, I think it, it all goes back to that construct-your-own-reality yeah. yeah. phenomenon. And, um, and that's the worrying thing. I'm, I had a very interesting time. I've been all over the place with the Da Vinci Code stuff. It's, it's been very interesting, the doors mm. it's opened for me. One of them was the Sixth Form College, mm. And I, I did a lecture called Cracking the Da Vinci Code with, a, with a 256 oh. formers oh. in a local comprehensive school. And it was very interesting because the, the guy who hosted it was the uh, head of history at the school, the department head of history afterwards. I'm not conscious he was a Christian or anything, but oh. he said to me after he said, I was fascinating about truth and truth being created. He said, I find with six-form students studying history A-level that they construct their own reality. And because of the cultural... Huh. suspicion of what actually factually happened, uh-huh. 
Um, people do make it up as they go along, and I'm saying, but what about objective reality yeah, and correspondence yeah. to facts? Yeah, but yeah. there's such a thing in the culture at the moment, sure. he said, that he said, I tear my hair out. I just, just despair now trying to teach history in any kind of, as a, any kind of objective science. And I suppose Holocaust denial would be an example in our yes. own time of yes. the worst oh. extreme of this. Oh. Make it up as you yeah. go along. Yeah. Which is an interesting uh, phenomenon in itself because part of the kind of Gnostic Gospels, these kind of, we would say probably second, third century uh, documents and movement, um, was that it was very anti Jewish, wasn't it? It was very. They believed that the Old Testament God was a a bad God, and the New Testament God came along to to Mm. sort out this nasty physical world and take us off to a kind of spiritual realm. Um, I was reading an article the other day by a Jewish scholar about the new Gospel of Judas. Uh, saying, you know, Jewish people might think that this was encouraging to have Judas rehabilitated since they've been associated with Judas all, all this period. But, but don't be deceived. He said it's uh, profoundly, it's a kind of metaphysical anti-Semitism yeah. that's yeah. involved. In, in and that, that is rampant in the Gnostic literature, but um, just as bad is the anti-feminine yeah. uh, viewpoint of the yes. Gnostic text. Now, what's very interesting is that Dan Brown says the exact opposite about them, yes. that they are very pro the sacred feminine, as he calls them. But, I mean, yes. in the Gospel of Thomas, you have, for example, a quote, something like this, that any woman that wants to be saved must become a man, must become male. Well, I've got it here, actually. Mary will be saved if she makes herself male, because every female who makes herself male will become fit for the kingdom of God. And Tom Wright, in his booklet, adds, that is hardly a ringing endorsement for the sacred feminine. Indeed. <laughs> it's not a quotation from the Da Vinci Code, is it? <laughs> hardly gets in there. But that's the Gospel of Thomas. Um, and funny enough, I mean, of all the Gospels to focus on in terms of uh, all the Gnostic Gospels that you'd think of focusing on in a novel like Dan mm. Brown, the mm. Gospel of Thomas would be the, uh, right up there at the top, but he mentions it only once in the mm. entire mm. novel. His mm. favourite is clearly the Gospel of Philip with its comment about Mary Magdalene kissing yeah. Jesus. So. Mm-hmm. so what do you make of that one then? Well, I think Dan Brown's very interesting on that because he gives us a quote without any of the blanks. Uh, yeah. By the blanks, I mean there are two words that uh, he claims are in the original quotation that are not there because the manuscript is fragmented. One of them is the word often and the other is the word mouth. So in his version, in Dan Brown's version, Mary Magdalene often kissed Jesus on the mouth. But in the original, it says Mary Magdalene kissed Jesus on the dot, dot, dot. We don't know where. So, <laughs> you know, Dan Brown fills in his own blanks. And, uh, yeah, okay. so it could have been worse. I it could know. have been yeah. worse, but it could have been a whole lot better. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, it does seem that, that was a gesture which is not, I mean, it just seems to be reading back something yeah. romantic. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Mm. New Testament. Into, into something yeah. which is completely culturally yeah, inappropriate. Exactly. Yeah, but that doesn't mean now what it meant. It doesn't, doesn't mean then what it, what it actually means. It's very now. Western, it's very Gentile, it's oh. very white, yeah. Yeah. and it's very sexually sort of neurotic yeah. as a reading. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so no projection th- there, yeah. then. No, no. <laughs> on all four fronts. <laughs> you have to mistrust this mistrustful interpretation. I mean, Gnosticism as a whole, because <clears throat> I guess a lot of the book is informed by, as you say, these Gnostic Gospels, a lot of whom which were, a lot of which were discovered at Nag Hammadi, the, the, the texts that were found there. Um, you know, from around the second, third century, as you say. But, mm. but um, well, it, it strikes me, I suppose, you know, if, if a lot of this material is coming from Gnostic texts, it's kind of buying into Gnosticism as a, as a phenomenon and kind, kind of trying to kind of re, 
going to give new energy to that. Well, I agree. Which is, which is in the very well, let's, let's cut to the chase yeah. about that. I mean, I think there's a reason for that. The Gnostic literature has um, become immensely popular in the last few years, as I know you're very well aware. And I think the reason for that is because it's very uh, resonant with a new age, oh, oh. if I can put it very generally, a new age spirituality that says that salvation oh. is by knowledge within and enlightenment oh. rather than by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. And of course, orthodox biblical Christianity for 2,000 years has said what I have just said, that we uh, experience salvation through faith in Christ alone, not through some special enlightened knowledge within our own subjective experience. And if it was the latter, then you'd exclude everyone, bar a few elite thinkers. But the great thing about the gospel is that it's for everyone. You know, anybody can believe and choose to believe that Jesus died for their sins and it's paid for once and for all. Uh, I agree, well, of course, agree with that, even, even being a systematic theologian. Um, but that's not how it's painted, isn't it? Is it? And the presentationally, the stuff is very well done. Yes. Well, not so much the, the Gospels, but the kind of modern Gnostics. Okay, right, they yeah. would say... Uh, we like the Gnostic stuff because it's about what's within. Therefore, everybody has it within them. They don't need uh, churches and institutions and hierarchies and priests telling you stuff. Uh, you don't need infallible books. Uh, it's all um, w- within myself, and therefore, it's, they would say it's therefore it's for everyone rather than for uh, precisely the opposite of what you were saying earlier. But in actual than practice, than for the few. we know from experience and from history that's the exact opposite of what happens. That with uh, Gnostic movements in the first, second, third century, probably more second than third, but I think there's something growing in the first as well that Paul is mm-hmm. um, corresponding against or, or to. Or with. In, but, in, but in I mean, Colossians and that Yeah, kind of yeah. Um, I, I think it's clearly elitist because mm-hmm. it's divisive. Ordinary people, as it were, if I can use that um, phrase, are not experiencing this level of enlightenment that other people are claiming. So gnosis, knowledge, becomes something... Uh, that's profoundly alienating for some. Um, and, sh- and shrinking, I think, is the, is the other thing. That yeah. If you're worshipping that which is within, you're worshipping something smaller than yourself. Yeah. Well. Whereas if you're worshipping God, you're worshipping something bigger than yourself. Indeed. And you expand, you're expanded yeah. by that process. Because mm-hmm. you become like what you worship. Yes. Uh, and if you worship what's within, you're, mm-hmm. you're not getting anything that isn't already there. You're not being that's expanded right. in any way. You're so being shut in on yourself mm-hmm. in the end. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing that strikes, strikes me about it, I suppose, is that the... It's kind of a, an attempt to domesticate Jesus. You know, actually, that's kind of what happens in, in, in the, kind of the story that's, that's presented by the Da Vinci Code. Jesus doesn't die on a cross. He kind of goes home and gets married and has a kid. Yeah. He is literally domesticated. Um, he becomes a, yes, he is. a house husband playing golf on his weekends and you know just just don't remember that in the gospel doing Gnostic gospel you play golf thank you there was a notice on your door last week so they went away on a course but I mean that just it's quite interesting I think that the Jesus that is presented by that is this rather sort of safe um, ordinary Jesus, as well, opposed that's one of the to the very, of the book, isn't it? yeah, um, as opposed to actually the, the quiet, kind of radical figure you get yeah. in the Gospels, who is actually very challenging and who doesn't just give me yeah. a nice, comforting, private spirituality to kind of see me through and make me feel better about myself, but actually challenges me to a, a very different kind of way of life than mm. than I would normally choose if it was down, yeah. down to me. 
And um, so it kind of just takes the rough edges off Jesus, and it makes him just this this rather anemic figure, I think, that he, who, who no one would ever really want to take much notice of at the end. I feel that as well, and I think it's a Jesus made in our image, mm. Um, mm. particularly mm. in the image of 21st century consumerism. This is mm. a consumer mm. Christian. Uh, this is a consumer Christ for a consumer Christianity. It, it is a, a Christ that uh, really doesn't call you to take up your mm. cross, and mm. doesn't even take up mm. a cross himself, mm. as you've rightly mm. said. So mm. I, I agree with that. I think that's part of the appeal, though, isn't it? Yep. It's it a safe Jesus. Mm. Mm. And, and ironically, and paradoxically perhaps, um, they have him getting married, but they don't have a very high view of marriage, whereas Orthodox Christianity doesn't have Jesus getting married, but does have a very high view yeah. of marriage. Uh, and I, that's part of the paradox of this thing. I well, I think that's, a, that's one of the very, very interesting questions I get asked uh, when I'm doing my presentation on the Da Vinci Code the whole time by non-Christians, atheists, mm. seekers, Christians alike, is uh, would it make any difference to the status of Jesus' divinity? If he had have been married, mm-hmm. why is marriage mm-hmm. such a negative mm-hmm. that it actually pulls him down in terms of his status mm-hmm. um, uh, of divinity? And I, I find that a very interesting question. Very interesting question. What do you say when you get asked that? Well, <laughs> I, I answer by saying no, because mm-hmm. I think as Christians we should have the highest view of marriage imaginable. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and the reason that Gnosticism has a low view of marriage is because it has a low view of the body. And, yep. and, and a physical union and, and of yep. uh, creation. And you, have, you have to buy and let's use the word sex. And sex. sex. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. You have to buy into that. If you're going to go down the Da Vinci Code line and buy into Gnosticism, you also buy into this very dualistic view of the world, which has a very negative view of the physical mm. and the created yeah. order, because that's yeah. what Gnosticism was, was driven by right from the very beginning. Yes. And sees us as being liberated from all that. Yeah. That's uh, right. And the yeah. strictures. And it yeah. plays quite nicely into the kind of not liking institutions mm. thing yes, of the modern does, world yeah. in that way, doesn't so, it? What about the Priory of Zion? What about it? Are oh, you a member? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't actually exist. It's a well, I wouldn't stop you being a member, joke. surely. It's a great joke, isn't it? It's a great joke by a Frenchman with a, an overly fertile imagination yeah. called Plantard. Nothing wrong with fertility, Mike. Nothing wrong no, with fertility. No. No. Um, indeed, thank you for reminding <laughs> Not me. Not at all. I wouldn't want to have given that impression directly <laughs> after having such a very marriage. Michael was as low as the tone. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, it's obviously a, yeah. a hoax, and that's been um, clearly and, I think, conclusively yeah. debunked in some mm. very, very good television mm. documentaries that have been on. The one by Tony Robinson's on. That was fantastic. The Time Team good. guys yeah. with yeah. Tony Robinson did a fabulous job on Channel 4. Amazingly, on Channel 4, they yeah. did a fabulous yes, job. Yes, yes. And in support French, of the truth. It was French right. existentialist surrealists, weren't they, who were just having a, yeah, bit, of having a bit of a laugh. Yeah, having a bit of a laugh. Claiming, claiming that uh, the Priory of Zion existed in the time of Leonardo da Vinci, that they were protecting this uh, earth-shattering secret yeah. of the marriage of Jesus and the bloodline being continued through this mm. yeah. line yeah. of French kings. And yeah. I think even Plontard, even uh, if that's the way you pronounce his name, Plontard. 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 I think he claimed to be himself descended from oh, yeah, this royal line yeah, and exactly. I think at that moment people Funny that. probably yeah. suspected yeah, I mean had he come through the their over credulity that there yeah. might have been uh, they smelled a rat there had, had it come through the English kings it would have been a different matter wouldn't it yeah, yeah, would have given it more, more plausibility <laughs> oh definitely yeah. with the royal yeah. touch and all that yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, the, the, the French judge that dealt with the case I think dismissed him as a crank and told him to pull himself together it was one of those occasions where I think judicial patronising language was absolutely called for the other feature of it that I think interests me quite a lot is, is the, the genre in which this comes to us. In other words, it comes in the form of a novel. This is not a kind of serious oh. book of scholarly 
thought. No, I suppose you noticed that, Graham. I suppose I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite bright at that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very perceptive. I did an English degree. Come on. <laughs> I recognise a lot of what I've seen. Exactly. But I suppose it, I mean, what strikes me about that is that very often, um, you know, the, the, the kind of things that we, we Christians write are these you know, sort of serious scholarly tomes sort of proving that, that um, you know, our books are apologetics or whatever, which actually no one reads at the end of the day. Whereas actually, you know, you've got 40 million people reading the Da Vinci Code. And, and I kind of I ask myself, you know, where, where are the kind of the, the novels, the works of fiction, and the films that, that do something similar for Orthodox Christianity? Oh, now, you get... You know, you get the Left Behind series, but... Yeah, you do, but a lot of people leave those behind, don't they? Leave <laughs> <laughs> that Left Behind, they've got, we'll do that on another Godpod, another day. Yeah, but not yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> someone else. But, um, but I suppose my, my, that's my, what I'm wondering is, could you do this for Orthodox Christianity? Well, Lewis did, didn't he? Yeah. Yep. Um, and, you know, we just had Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe yep. uh, made into a, a blockbuster film. Um yep. Uh, so it can be done, but I have to agree, I have to say one's mind reaches back to the, to the 50s and si- 40s, 50s and 60s. Well, not exclusively. I mean, there are people like G.P. Taylor, for yes. example, yep. yes. who are, I think, trying to do exactly what mm. you're talking mm. about. I mean, mm. the problem has been that, I mean, talking to publishers, Christian mm. publishers in the UK, mm. is that Christian fiction is not of the quality yeah. um, at the moment. Well, mm. I, let me, this was two years ago I had this discussion. Things may have changed, but the quality was just simply not there. And the, and the demand for this genre literature wasn't there. I, I do believe that might change, especially mm. with the rediscovery of Lewis. Again, yeah. or rediscovery, I mean, yeah. you know what I mean. The resurgence of incredible interest yeah. rather than just normal interest. And, of course, <laughs> one of the ironic things about this is one of the reasons why Christian fiction is not terribly well done by and large, at least in recent times, is because of a kind of dualistic, Gnostic view of our creativity, that uh, mm. these things are rather nasty and we need to concentrate on spiritual things. And, mm. um, so yeah. it's the same... Nasty. I think we're going to see much more creativity yeah. uh, in and amongst and through Christians in the future. Yeah. Much, much more. I, I really do feel that is going to be one of the defining hallmarks of uh, the next generation yep. of Christianity is uh, Christian novelists and artists, painters, script writers, film yeah. producers. There's I, I, I mean, there's already signs of that, aren't there? Yep. But I mean, I, 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 do, I do feel quite excited about even what I'm seeing now in grassroots mm. terms. Uh, and it will not be unsubtle. Mm. That's the other mm. thing. You know, the thing about Left Behind and various other phenomena like mm. that, which you could mention, is that they're not... They don't revel in subtlety, do they? And I think well, I think there's a chicken, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But I, I think with, with kind of novelistic apologetics, there will be a, a call to do it more indirectly yeah, and with exactly. a greater um, astuteness yeah. than the very obvious in your face. Yes, you can't be preachy in a novel. I don't think you can. It doesn't work. Exactly. Though, in fact, interestingly, there's a whole chapter of the Da Vinci Code that's incredibly preachy. Yeah, yeah true. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, but it's embedded not the truth in the story, isn't it? It but is embedded, but, but you feel as though the actual yeah. preach at this critical moment sure. with um, Sir Lee Teabing giving yeah. the kind of That's right, yeah, secret. Was, I mean, that yeah, whole chapter yeah. is very didactic. It's very preachy. It is. Yeah, it is. And um, you feel as though everything is, is subservient to this yeah. one moment, yeah. really. I mean, to be fair, of course, a lot of the great literature of the past has a Christian bearing to it. I mean, you think one thinks of Dickens again, since he seems to be cropping up. Progress. Um, yeah. Progress. Progress. Um, Victor Hugo. Spencer. Uh, Spencer mm, all, all, very... Yes. Dairy Queen. 
Wonderful, yeah, wonderful Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a large amount. Really pompous, then, didn't we? Just for a moment. We did a bit, that's right, yes. What do you mean, just for a moment? In the last 25 minutes. It depends on it. Sorry about that. Speak yourself. I've been trying to be pompous for the last. Very good. Well, um, that's been great to talk about some of those kind of issues um, around the Da Vinci Code. Mark, you've written a little um, booklet here called Cracking the Da Vinci Code, and um, you can get that from the website, is that right? Correct. Do we have time just to ask one final question about... Yeah, go on, yeah. um, How how do we respond? I mean, the film's coming out shortly, will be out perhaps by the time people read this. What's the tone of response? That's a really good question, I think. I, I think that's a good question because yeah. Christians do, I use this phrase a lot, do tend to go off on one. They do. You know, and I, I, I think that the worst possible reaction is to get all negative, defensive, yes. fundamentalist about it. You know, um, I love that definition of a fundamentalist that I heard recently. They're no fun, they're pretty dumb, and they're certainly mental. <laughs> you heard that? <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And that is the exact wrong way to react to this. You know, it is the exact wrong way to... So, not negative. I, I think... Um, we would not be having this conversation around this mm. table if it wasn't for Dan Brown. Mm. We, yeah. I would not be doing all this. He's got a lot to answer for, hasn't he? Yeah, really? I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> I've been into city banks here in the London schools, mm. universities, all over the country, doing effectively mm. evangelistic addresses mm. using Dan Brown's mm. novel. And yeah. what it has done is that it's given us the possibility of mm. passionate debate, sure. which can only be a good thing. So I would hate it if Christians. Uh, um, went out with their placards mm. and you know treated this as mm. the sort of final heresy, yeah. you know that Dan Brown is the Antichrist and so on, mm. the man speaking, of lawlessness. Speaking of which, well, the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, is that a nice link? <laughs> it is quite a nice link actually. We, we, we always have a little um, spot of weird religious stuff on this um, this. Well, just say But I, I, I found, found this the other day, which is a book. Um, which is called The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea. Did you write that? Nope. It's written by somebody called Tim Cohen, whoever he is. Is it the opposite of and cafe theology, presumably? It probably is, right? <laughs> and it's published by Prophecy House Incorporated. And, um, that must be an American firm. Well, the summary yeah. goes like this. Um, the Antichrist and a Cup of Tea uniquely offers hard evidence concerning the identity of the Antichrist of biblical prophecy, who appears to be Prince Charles. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, always wanted yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's because he talks to plants, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, there's, there's more, there's more. Yeah, Prince Charles, unlike all previous candidates, fulfills the following scriptural criteria. His name calculates to 666 in both English and Hebrew. Symbols in his What is Prince Charles in Hebrew? I have no idea. <laughs> You're the biblical scholar. <laughs> his symbols in his heraldic achievement or coat of arms are identical to those of the first beast of Revelation 13. Uh, he, he claims descent from David, Jesus, and Muhammad. I wasn't aware he did that, but anyway. But he's most likely from the tribe of Dan and Odin. Brackets is that Dan Brown? <laughs> he literally serves the red dragon Satan which was central to his 1969 investiture as the Prince of Wales as do the whole Welsh nation exactly yeah well they're all in it um, he wants to be the king of Europe he heads the world United World Colleges blah 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 blah. everything else that's down there so, he, so we now know we do, and actually, I wouldn't mind borrowing that because I could earn a lot of money uh, turning that into a novel. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's got it all. Conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Royal kind of stuff mm. could be very good. Poking institutions, exactly. Um, actually, I think you got. I, I, I think you really landed on something. So yeah, if I'm, I can slip you a fiver, I'd like that. I'd be more than a fiver. I'm afraid. One percent of the royalties. I think. Yes, delightful. 
Uh, with apologies to Prince Charles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope he's not yeah, listening we, to this. We don't mean that for a moment. <laughs> um, Mark, it's been great to, uh, to, to chat with you today. Thank you very much. It's been a, I, I mean it when I say it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thank you, Mike. It's, it's a pleasure for me as well. Okay. Okay.